Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra and pay our respects to Elders, past, present and future. This podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries, Fitzroy Historical Society and the Ewing Trust. Hello and welcome to the third Ewing Trust Fitzroy Walking Tour podcast. Fitzroy, Melbourne's first suburb, is full of stories both old and new. The Fitzroy Walking Tours podcast makes Fitzroy history easily accessible to the public. Each podcast features experts talking about a particular topic. Simply download the podcast, go to the starting point and start your walk around the streets of Fitzroy. Visit places of interest along your journey, taking things at your own pace. Or listen anytime, anywhere. This very special episode focuses on McRobertson's Chocolates. The company was founded by Sir McPherson Robertson in 1880. It was based in Fitzroy for over a hundred years, before moving to Ringwood. McRobinson's created numerous famous confections, including Fredo Frog, Cherry Ripe and Old Gold Chocolates. If you would like to follow this tour using the locations talked about, then please make your way to where the tour starts, outside of 214 Argyle Street in Fitzroy. Now over to the experts. Many thanks to our friends at Fitzroy Historical Society for sharing their knowledge. This is the third in our podcast series of walks around the Fitzroy area. This one centres on a chap called McPherson Robertson's, better known as Mac Robertson. The Mac Robertson's, famous for cherry ripes, Fredo frogs. Um, the Mac Robertson comes from the amalgamation of his name McPherson, which was his first name, and Robertson, which is his last name. He was born in 1859 in Ballarat. He died in 1945, so lived to a good age of 86 at the time. He was married twice during his life, and he was the eldest of seven children. His early years were in Scotland, and he came back to Australia with his family as a young man in 1874. He started his own business from the back of a house in Argyle Street, and that's where this uh, walk will start at 214 Argyle Street, which is um, near where the original home for McPherson Robertson was. As we stand out the front of the old premises in 214 Argyle Street, if you look north to the corner in front of the apartment buildings on the right is the actual original house location of McPherson Robertson. That house doesn't exist there anymore, but you can see McRobertson's Lane on the right-hand side as we look north. His house was on the corner of that lane. He lived there with his family, or seven, he was one of seven children. And that's where uh, he first started making confectionery. Uh, there's a book that he penned for him called A Young Man in a Nail Can uh, that tells a story of how he um, used a nail can to light a fire in and then a copper over that to boil sugar confectionery uh, in the 1870s. Over the next 50 years, his business grew to occupy 25 acres 
in the area where we're standing now. It consisted of 18 buildings and employed somewhere around 3,000 people. In 1930, Macpherson Robertson was the highest taxpayer in Australia. He was a philanthropist and quite the entrepreneur. You will remember his name on things like the McRobertson's Bridge, uh, built in 1933, McRobb's Girls High School, an air race from London to uh, Melbourne in 1934, McRobertson Miller Airlines, which was in WA, and also uh, he funded the Antarctica expedition in 1929. A large part of Antarctica is called McRobertson's Land. There's also a fountain in the Shrine Gardens, commissioned and built in 1934. So the talk today will walk around the old McRobertson's buildings. Where we're standing now, if you turn around at 214 Argyle Street and look at the old office buildings, you'll see that it says established in 1888. The building you're looking at now, where we're looking south, probably wasn't built in 1888. It looks more like 1930s, but behind that was one of the original factories. As part of this podcast, we'll also intersperse the case with reminiscence of an employee called Doug Loveless, who started off here in 1965 as a employment and safety officer. So Doug conducted a walk around the area and he's probably one of the last employees who worked at McRobertson's. He worked here for two years from 65 to 67 before he moved with the McRobertson factory out to Ringwood. He had a nail can as a fire and he was making little novelties during the week and he was off to the city, which was Pitzroy is the oldest suburb in Melbourne, but he would sell his little mouses and horses and all sorts of little novelties, particularly eh? frogs. Frogs, of course. <laughs> we haven't come to predator yet. <laughs> uh, he would sell them during, particularly he'd go to the theatres, the theatres that would be a Saturday night, and he'd stand outside the theatres. We're now going to walk west to the end of Argyle Street, turn right into Gore Street, and we're going to walk about 50 metres down Gore Street and stop in the front of one of the large factories. So this is the second stop, and we should be in Gore Street midway between Argyle and Kerr Street. So if we're now standing in front of this converted apartments now. Uh, this was one of the f main factories in the factories that consisted of 18 blocks around this area. This factory was uh, one of the main manufacturing halls. If you look closely at the building, you can see figures that have been left in the renovation, the letters B, C, D, E and F. They signalled exit points and entry points to the factory. These were initially doors into the factory and you can actually see, if you look at the brickwork, some of the um, hemispherical doors which were open for cart to come in and out. 
both for deliveries of raw materials and also for exit uh, of finished goods to be delivered throughout the area. Chocolate is made largely from four uh, base materials, sugar or milk concentrate, uh, cocoa, butter, and a thing called cocoa mass. So they're the four main ingredients that make all types of chocolate, from white chocolate through to dark chocolate. I actually worked at the Cadbury factory, uh, which was bought by McRobinson in 1967. So I know a little bit about chocolate making. The chocolate making that was done in this factory was all handmade, so very different from the highly mechanical way that chocolate's made these days. Uh, the building in front of us is uh, one of three storey buildings in this area. Uh, the factories that uh, McRobertson had before they were all converted to apartments consisted of single storey, three storey, five storey and even seven to eight storey buildings as we'll see as we walk around. That's the end of the discussion for this second stop. We'll now work, walk further down Gore Street and stop on the corner of Gore and Kerr Street. This is the third stop and we should be on the corner of Kerr and Gore Street. Behind us on this corner is what was called the engine house which generated power for the factories in the area. Directly in front of us now um, from this corner is the old gold factory which is seven storeys. So you can see that factory in front of you. It was one of the larger factories and contained seven floors of chocolate manufacturer, mainly making assortments and old gold chocolate. The way chocolate's made very briefly is a combination of four ingredients that I mentioned earlier you need to what's called conch the ingredients in a large uh, equivalent of a mix master, which uh, mixes the ingredients for periods of between six to eight hours. This turns it into a paste type product, which is then combined with the cocoa butter and made into a syrupy chocolate that you can see, which is then molded into various different molds. We are now going to walk further down Gore Street and stop on the corner of Gore and Rose Street. It's best to be on the southwest corner of this intersection. So this is the fourth stop, which should be on the corner of Gore and Rose Street. As we look east towards Smith Street, that was where the stables and stores were located. So all of the transportation and delivery of raw materials in the 1970s during the start of this would have been horse-drawn carriages. Goods were bought, bought here every day from all around Melbourne. They consisted of tray trucks and finished products that were distributed. Um, so there was a large stables and warehouse in this area. We're now going to walk west down Rose Street to an apartment building that was once another factory for McRobertson's. We should walk approximately 100 metres down Rose Street 
and B outside the front of 165 Rose Street. This is the fifth stop and it is roughly midway between Gore Street and George Street at 165 Rose Street. The building you see in front of you, which again has been converted into apartments, was one of the many stores that McRobertson's used for a variety of different goods. His industry at that time uh, was tremendously vertically integrated. So what that means is nowadays you would tend to focus on one part of manufacturing. What McRobertson's did was enter all parts of manufacturing. So he would have box stores manufacturing boxes, packaging manufacturing packaging, sugar refineries up in Queensland, uh, cocoa mass and cocoa butter imported from overseas. He had industries for all parts of his supply chain, not a thing that you would do these days, but he was involved in the design, the packaging, the boxing and the distribution. The rate books of 1948 for this area show that McRobertson's had buildings on both sides of the street. Many of them are, are torn down now and been replaced by either private dwellings or apartment blocks. We're going to continue walking down Rose Street until we get to the south side of the street between George and Napier. This is the sixth stop between George and Napier Street at 156 Rose Street. This in front of you is the wax paper factory which was built in 1924. As I mentioned, uh, McRobertson is a very vertically integrated operation, so he would make wax paper which was used particularly to uh, wrap up confectionery and keep the confectionery from sweating. We'll now continue walking west along Rose Street until we arrive at the corner of Rose and Napier Street. You should be on the southeast corner here for the seventh stop. Hi, I'm Rachel and this is stop seven. This unassuming whitewashed house on the corner of Napier and Rose Street has an interesting history. If you cross Napier Street, you get a better vision of this row of workers' cottages. You cannot help but notice how the apartments behind the houses and to the right loom over and dwarf these little cottages. All of these factories were part of McRobertson's factory city, but in 1886 they didn't exist and a young 26-year-old McPherson Robertson was distracted. He was in love. On 8 July 1886, McPherson married the lovely Elizabeth Heddington, who was two years his junior. For the first time in his life, McPherson started to draw a salary for himself, and with this he moved himself and Elizabeth to their first married home at 431 Napier Street. This house had only just been completed and they were the first tenants. He didn't stay here long though, and by the end of the following year he was living here at Clover, 382 Napier Street which was also built circa 1886. According to Jill Robertson, author of McRobertson, The Chocolate King, this was a period of turmoil for McPherson. It appears that the marriage to Elizabeth was not celebrated by his parents and family, who according to Jill were worried about McPherson and the money earned from the factory being diverted from the family. As such, there was tension, which eventually saw McPherson leave the chocolate business that he had been forging since his first job in a lolly factory in the UK when he was only 12 to 13 years old. McPherson's father, David, 
had been operating for some time as the sales manager for the factory, which involved travelling around to the shops and distributors to sell the products. During this period, he went by both the name David and Macpherson. And so following the rift between him and his son, he appears to assume Macpherson's name and makes claims on his rounds that it is indeed he that is the founder of the business. The young Macpherson sadly leaves the business he created seven years earlier. But this clearly is not the end of the Macpherson story. Macpherson was not idle in this period, but more on that at our next stop. Macpherson and Elizabeth welcomed both their children into the world while living here at Clover. Unfortunately, their oldest, Ernest, became sick, just shy of two years old and passed away in 1889. Seven months later, Stella was born in June 1890 and she becomes very special in Macpherson's life. Perhaps the house held unhappy memories because by the end of 1891, they had moved. Now, if you're still standing opposite 382, have a look at the roof of the house and those next to it. The four houses on the end of the row all share the same roof. This is because the owner of the four houses from the day they were built was James Lyons, a draper and carter who lived at number 376 with his wife Hannah. These four houses were sold together for the first time in 1912 and were still all owned by one single owner when they were again sold in 1950. Now let's walk up Napier Street heading south towards the city until you arrive at the corner of Napier and Kerr Street. You cannot miss our next stop, Napier Quarter, a lovely little wine bar, and if you have time and inclination, I can tell you about our next stop over a glass of wine while you sit at one of the little tables on Kerr Street. Stop eight. So you should be on the corner of Napier and Kerr Street. Glass of wine in hand or not, I will tell you about this lovely little wine bar, but first let me take your attention to the factory across the road. This was initially a house built in 1875 and appeared to have a reasonable land surrounding it. In 1887 or early 1888, the house came up for sale and Macpherson, who was living at Clover, from which we have just come, saw the opportunity and brought the site, built a factory and established the American Candy Company. So that even though he was no longer part of McRobertson's, he was still pursuing his dream of making candy, which under the guidance of Macpherson did extremely well. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for McRobertson's, which was declining under his father's control, and it wasn't long before the American Candy Company was doing better than McRobertson's. Eventually, after six long years, David McRobertson brokered peace and asked McPherson to return to the company while he returned to England for machinery. But surprisingly, when David returned, he stayed on as the head of the company. McPherson accepted the situation and after brokering a deal to receive 40% of the profits of McRobertson's, agreed to merge his now more successful American Candy Company in with the other business. The factory was predominantly used to create paper boxes and packaging for McRobertson's and after McPherson went back to manu manufacturing candy at McRobertson's, it was managed by Walter Hooper. Walter was not the most compliant operator and the site was regularly visited by the Health and Public Works Committee. Walter was charged with many offences during the period, including his requirement that the females work longer than their statutory hours, failing to provide wage books, failing to pay income tax, and for having unsafe equipment on more than one occasion. Hooper operated the factory until at least 1906, and by 1910 it was the McCutcheson & Co. paper box manufacturers. But now, let me take us back to Napier Quarter. 
This little bluestone two-room cottage is one of the oldest properties north of Johnson Street, built in 1859. The house is now known as 361 Napier Street. With the house built, James Inkester, a contractor responsible for building many of the curbs and gutters around Melbourne and Fitzroy, married and brought up his four children in this little stone cottage. In 1877, James had a three-room shop built on the corner with the front window facing Kerr Street. This was known as the Willow Tree Store. After James Inkster died, aged 58, in 1889, his wife Catherine continued the grocery store for over a decade, probably serving the workers of the, at the paper box factory and the other factories that McPherson was establishing in the area. Funny enough, the store was advertised for rent in 1893, promoting its good seller. It seems only fitting that now it is a very fine wine bar. From here we are heading along Kerr Street towards George Street. As you work along Kerr Street, notice the apartment conversions of these McRobertson factories on your left and stop outside the gorgeous Marquis of Lawn. Stop 9, Kerr Street and George Street. So you should be out the front of the Marquis of Lawn. And just before I step into the warm and inviting Marquis of Lawn to hear Mike tell me of the history of this pub, I want to point out the colour of the building opposite. This shade of white is said to be the closest to what all of the McPherson-Robertson factories were painted. In fact, McRobertson's and this part of Fitzroy was once known as the White City. McPherson loved the pure colour of white, representing cleanliness, and required that all the women working in his factory wore white, and when he was a little older, he would only be seen wearing white, quite the figure on his horse-drawn carriage with the finest horses in town. I'll now hand over to Mike. Here we are at the stop nine, and it's at southwest corner of George Street and Kerr Street in the Marquis of Lawn Hotel. This hotel was built in 1873 for the owner, Richard Thorne, and his family still owned the hotel right through until 1940. Who was the Marquis of Lawn, and why the name? The Marquis of Lawn is a courtesy title for the son and heir of the Duke of Argyle. In 1871, the Marquis married Queen Victoria's fourth daughter, Princess Louise, and presumably there was a lot of public sentiment for the Queen's son-in-law. Lawn itself is a historic province within the county of Argyll in Western Scotland. The Victorian town of Lawn adopted its name in 1871, the same year as the marriage, and there are several other streets with that name across Melbourne. Now, we're at 403 George Street, Fitzroy. I'm standing on the Smith Street side of George Street, on the corner of Kerr Street, looking across at the Marquis of Lawn, but it's not the hotel I'm going to talk to. It is the property a few paces down the street towards Argyle Street, being 403 George Street. This is a beautiful Queen Anne villa, and in its day was very attractive, though some of the original features have been lost, such as its red tile roof, over time. But this house wasn't the first on this land. The first Western house here dates back to as far as 1860 and maybe earlier, but prior to 1911, when Harrierville was built by Arthur Trotter and for his family, it was a simple wooden house and rented to a range of people over 50 years. Trotter was living in Kerr Street, first at number 63 and then at 116, prior to moving closer to his employer, McRobertson's Chocolate Factory. 
He moved in with his mother who passed away the year following, his wife Beatrice and their son Harry. In fact, the house was named Harryville, like Harrietville but without the T, after his son. In early January 1913, the Trotters returned from holidays and on Monday the 6th of January, he recompensed his employ at the, as a commercial traveller, collecting monies owed to McRobertsons. Being his first collection after the holidays, it was a large collection, amounting to over £200, but working long hours meant that Trotter wasn't always able to get to the bank, and so when he retired, he hid the money under his mattress. At about 1.15am, Arthur and Beatrice were startled by the electric light in their room being switched on and awoke to find two young men standing, pointing revolvers at them. The bedroom this took place in is the room on the right-hand side of the house as you face it, under the balcony. Harry, who was about five years old, awoke from his cot under the very window you are now looking at and seeing the situation cried out, Don't shoot my daddy! Beatrice pleaded for her husband to provide the money and while the lead, lead burglar was distracted, in his response to her, Arthur lunged out of the bed at him, only to be shot, the bullet entering near his left eye and lodging in his brain. Raised by her screams, the chauffeur and his wife, who lived next door, tended to Beatrice and after finding a policeman, the chauffeur drove Arthur to St Vincent's, where he passed away the following morning. Being a popular man, over a thousand people are said to have attended the funeral, with police required to control the crowds. Following Arthur's death, the house had had a number of residents before Sister Agnes Jean Truscott moves in from Malden with her sister. Sister Truscott, a nurse, sets up a private hospital at this address in 1924, and there are records of children being born at the residence in 1926 and 1930. But in 1939, she leaves 403 George Street and the Foot family move in. Isaac, Gladys and their two sons and Gladys' sister make the house their home and the house remained in their family until 2011, when it was sold for 1.75 million. So a wooden house to a beautiful Queen Anne villa, the scene of a violent burglary to a house which brought forth new life, and then a family home for over 70 years. I'm sure this house will have many stories into the future. From here, cross George Street, turn left into Argyle Street, and then walk east towards Collingwood for about 100 metres. Next we're at stop 11, on the south side of Argyle Street, just west of Gore Street. Neil Harvey lived at number 198, which is now gone, and he played in this laneway. And, and he came back in his later life and played with the kids in the area probably 50 years after he first made the cricket team. Neil Harvey was a member of the Australian cricket team from 1948 to 1963 and he was the vice-captain from 1957. He was the fifth of six cricketing brothers and was a member of Don Bradman's 1948 Invincibles team. He still holds the record as the youngest Australian to score a test century. The Harvey family had come from Sydney in 1926 when McRobertson's acquired the Lifesavers Company and relocated that business and the key staff to Melbourne, hence uh, Neil Harvey's father and family came down to Melbourne and lived here. We're now going to walk up Argyle Street east to the corner of Gore and Argyle Street, so close by to where we started the walk previously. 
On this corner behind us was the garage that housed many of the cars that McRobertson's had. Uh, McPherson Robertson or MacRob was a real car enthusiast. He was one of the first people to import cars from the US and he had a fleet of cars which were kept immaculately. Doug Lovelace has a story about payroll processing of McRobertson's and that every morning one of the secretaries from the office would get into a mini miner from this point would exit the garage, be driven down to the local bank where the payroll would be deposited or withdrawn depending on, um, on what was happening. And then the car would be driven back about an 800 metre drive, this mini miner, and it would be cleaned and vacuumed and polished for that same thing to happen the following day. So he was a real car enthusiast and um, there's many pictures of him that are not hard to find um, sitting astride early cars or in his later days cars imported from the US. That was the 12th stop in, in this tour. We're now going to walk up Gore Street to the corner of Johnson Street and then turn left and head east along Johnson Street and we're going to stop outside the Aldi that you'll find there. The Aldi's on Johnson Street and it's on the corner of Johnson Street and McRobertson's Lane. Mike's going to talk to us again about the mural on this corner and also the Lyric Theatre. Our next stop is outside the Aldi supermarket in Johnson Street, just west of Smith Street. This was the site of the Lyric Theatre, which operated there from 1911 through to 1938 and was later used by McRobertson's as a storage site for their produce. By 2020, the Lyric Apartment Complex was built above to the east side of the building, towards Smith Street, is a laneway sidewall, including a large mural. This mural depicts the early residents here, a community of ants collecting the popcorn from the theatre floor and taking it back to their nest. The public art installation includes a panel describing the mural and the artist, well worth a walk down the lane. If you walk down McRobertson's Lane North, you'll end up back at Argyle Street, which is where we started the walk. So we've circumnavigated what was originally called the White City, prominently displayed, uh, as um, Rachel mentioned, given the stark white painting of all the factories. So in summary, I guess you can appreciate the fantastic entrepreneurial spirit that McRobertson had and the legacy that he left throughout Victoria. That was members of the Fitzroy Historical Society and local Fitzroy history experts, Simon Armstrong, Rachel Axton and Mike Moore. If you would like to find out more about McRobertson's chocolates, please visit Fitzroy Library, where we have books on the subject. And while you're there, check out the bust of Sir McPherson Robertson that is situated on the library floor. This podcast was brought to you by Yarra Libraries, Fitzroy Historical Society and the Ewing Trust. The Ewing Trust is a fund that allows special and unique programming at Fitzroy Library and promotes libraries, literature and a lifelong love of learning in Fitzroy. There are five libraries within the city of Yarra, Carlton, Richmond, Collingwood, Fitzroy and Bargunga Nunjan North Fitzroy. 
These libraries provide free access to collections, programs and events to residents and visitors to Yarra. Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust are proud to support the Libraries Change Lives initiative, which highlights how Victorian public libraries change lives by offering communities a place to learn, create and belong. Please like, share and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast. Thank you to the Ewing Trust for making this podcast possible.